Let's focus our attention, please. We're getting ready to read and hear God's word. First Corinthians chapter two says that the ear has not heard, the eye has not seen, and neither has the mind of man conceived of what God has in store. In our passage this morning, in a few short verses, God peels back just a little of the curtain. Let's focus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father God, we are overwhelmed to think that you sought us out from before eternity began, and here we see the beginning of everything new with you. Be with Tom as he preaches. May your spirit work in our hearts to serve you, for we praise you and honor you and love you with our hearts. In your name, amen. Good morning. Well, this is the third and final installation of, a, of the short three-part series on the central promise of the Bible. I uh, kind of hate to bring it to an end because this, this is such a magnificent truth, such a marvelous truth. What we've seen in this series thus far is that in both testaments of God's Word, there is a promise, and that promise shows up over and over and over. And the promise is in three parts. People, place, and blessed relationship with God. Uh, when the Bible sets out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we have the, the, the promise manifest in reality in Eden. We have, we have God first preparing a place and then creating a people. He creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in that place and God provides for them amazing abundance, every good thing. But above all that abundance is the very presence of God there with them. The, the greatest abundance that exists for human beings is relationship with God and Adam and Eve enjoyed that relationship. But of course, Adam sinned. He exalted his own word over the word of God. And God cast Adam and Eve out of the place. And 
human beings died both physically and spiritually. Uh, And from that point forward, starting in Genesis chapter 3, we find the promise. The promise of God to redeem man and creation. And again, that promise is the same. It's this threefold promise that we've talked about. People, place, and blessed relationship with God. God will create a people made fit by him to dwell with him. It's a people for himself. He will prepare a place of abundant provision for that people, and he will dwell in that place with that people in blessed and unhindered relationship for all eternity. This is the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. This is the promise given through Moses in Exodus. This is the promise given to King David in 2 Samuel 7. And this is the new covenant promise given through the prophets throughout the Old Testament. People, place, and blessed relationship with God. Throughout all of the instances of this promise, the focus is always on the person, the person through whom the promise will come about, the person on whom the promise utterly depends. That person is the seed of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. He is the righteous king in the line of David, born as a child, ruling on the throne of David in righteousness and justice in the city of David over all the nations forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, and Isaiah 9 declares. This, is, this person is the one that God calls the righteous branch, the one he calls my anointed one, my Messiah, the one that he calls my servant David, even after David has gone home to the Lord. Over and over, God declares to his, his covenant people, I will cleanse you of all your uncleanness. I will forgive your sin. I will bring you to the place that I have made for you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will dwell there in that place right in the midst of you. God says to mankind, my anointed one, my Messiah will be your king, your shepherd, your protector, and your well-being in the place that I have prepared for you. The same promise abides throughout the New Testament. In fact, from the very first words of the New Testament, as we saw last time, the focus is on the person who will fulfill this promise. Matthew chapter 1 begins with, as he describes it, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This Jesus is given two names in Matthew chapter 1. The first is Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. Verse 21 says, You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then the gospel writer adds, which translated means God with us, God with us. That's the promise. At his first coming, Jesus lived a perfect sinless life for 33 years, 
walked among us after taking on our humanness, and he died in the place of sinners, and he was raised from the dead, and his death and resurrection redeems all who trust in him. He paid the debt of our sin against God that had alienated us from God, that had, that had separated us from the promise. And he has covered us with his righteousness in order, to, in order to accomplish what? Well, in order to qualify us to dwell in the presence of our perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God. Jesus couldn't simply establish a kingdom and then bring a bunch of people into that kingdom when he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He had, to, he had to, out of the mass of sinful and fallen humanity, he had to create a people that he made worthy to dwell in that place with him. And that's why he came the first time, to redeem a people for himself. Jesus' blood and righteousness applies this marvelous promise to us. In his second coming, which the, the Old Testament prophets speak about and the New Testament prophets speak about and Jesus himself declared, he is going to, to come again and he's going to bring with him the place that he's prepared for us. We remember in John chapter 14 on the, the night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he said, I'm, I've got to leave, but if I go, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. God creating a people for his own possession, preparing a beautiful place for that people and dwelling in that place with that people for all eternity. I pray, I pray that every single person here walks away with that threefold promise very clearly in mind because it, it ties the Bible together from start to finish, literally from start to finish. In Hebrews chapter 11, we saw last time that God's people, even in the Old Testament, never fixed their sights on what they could lay hold of here and now. But instead, they longed for the city of God. They longed for a city built by God, not by men. The place that they were waiting for and looking for was a heavenly city. That's the place that Jesus went to prepare for us. It's the place that he's going to bring back with him. While we wait, we have part of the promise now. We already have blessed relationship with God and with his people. We get to take those two things with us into that city when Jesus comes back. And the table that we celebrate here every Sunday morning is a reminder that we already have part of the promise, and it's a, it's a marvelous part. We already have communion with God accomplished by the blood of Christ. Now, this morning we're going to get to the end of this discussion, and we're going to talk about the promise fulfilled, first in the Old Testament and then in, then in the New Testament. There are two passages that, uh, that we'll be looking at in some detail. The first is in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 60. The second that's very, very similar to it is in the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. First, the Old Testament. Before we look at Isaiah, 
60, let's look at the, the end of the chapter that, came, that comes just before it. At the end of Isaiah 59, God looks down upon earth and he sees, uh, he finds that there is no justice on the earth and that there is no man to vindicate his holy name and to repay his adversaries. And so God declares that he himself will accomplish that, that vindication and he will also accomplish salvation. Uh, he's going to provide the man for himself. That's the prophecy. It's the man that he calls his own arm. And he will be equipped with righteousness, with salvation, with vengeance, and with zeal. He will come like a rushing stream to execute a fierce judgment against those who stand against God. But then in the last two verses of Isaiah 59, there's a shift in the prophecy and it moves from a promise of judgment to a promise of redemption, of deliverance. It says, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Zion is Jerusalem, but it's not the Jerusalem that we know. It's the Jerusalem that God will have, at this point, will redeem. He will make new. He will make worthy of Messiah. It's not, the, it's not the Jerusalem that killed the prophets, according to Jesus' accusation. It's the Jerusalem that God will make his dwelling place. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of your children's children, says Yahweh, from now on and forever. Then we come to chapter 60. In chapter 60, God is addressing the city, the restored Zion, the new Jerusalem. And he says, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In verse 13, he declares that he will be in that place. It says, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. When God calls something the place of his feet, he means the place that he, where he will be. So Zion will be God's dwelling place. The end of chapter 14 says, they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Verse 16 says, Then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And then he, he breaks into, God goes into a description of the city, and it's marvelous. He says, Instead of bronze, verse 17, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators and I will make righteous your overseers, righteousness your overseers. 
Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light. And the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all of your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. I, Yahweh, will hasten it in its time. What a promise. Beloved, this is the promise of Jeremiah 31 fulfilled. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will forgive their sins and I will cleanse them and they will all know me. This is the promise of Jeremiah 32 fulfilled. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know what God loves to do? God loves to redeem. He loves to lavish his love on those whom he has made his own. This is the promise of Ezekiel 37 fulfilled. I will deliver them, 37.22, I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. And they will be my people. And I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over all of them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my statutes and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. <laughs> and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Again, David has been dead for several hundred years at this point. He's talking about Jesus, the, the long-promised king in the line of David, the perfect David, will be your prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and I will multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Four times he says, I will be right there with them. That's the promise, beloved. God creating a people for his own possession, preparing a place for that people, and being in that place with that people in perfect and unhindered love and communion and fellowship for all eternity. That is the central promise of the Bible. 
The same promise in the New Testament, the the promise of the fulfillment is found in Revelation 21 and 22. The passage that my brother John just read, the the very heart of that, uh, verses 1 through 5, is verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 again. Uh, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is God talking loudly. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Guys, how important do you think this is if God says it so many times? This is is the heart of God's promise. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Men. Now let me read some of the description of the city from Revelation 21 and 22, and you can match it up with some of the things that we just saw in Isaiah 60. Chapter 21, 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22 starts out, it it continues with the description. It says, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. (laughs) And there shall no longer be any curse. There shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's the place that, that, God, that God has prepared for us. That's the place Jesus went to make ready. <laughs> this is the promise of the entire Bible fulfilled. This is Eden restored in perfection. This is God dwelling in the midst of the people that he has made worthy by the blood of Christ alone to dwell with him. 
This is God with his people in the place that Jesus, their suffering Savior and glorious King, went to prepare for them, for us, for all who trust in him alone. This is God's promise for his people throughout every part of his word to mankind from beginning to end. There are a couple of other things that I want to that I want to touch on before we finish this series. The first is that while the, this promise is the ground of our hope and that hope is the anchor of our souls, there are a few things that we need to understand in order for us to, to, to rightly represent and rightly comprehend what God has given to us in this hope, what, what Peter calls our living hope. And those three things I, I think are best set before us in Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews, Romans 8 verses 24 and 25 and Hebrews 11 verse 1. So let's read those. Romans 8, 24 and 25. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. With perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And then go to Hebrews chapter 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God has given us a hope that is absolutely sure and certain but it's not yet seen and both parts of that are exceedingly important for us beloved I believe there is a three strand cord that ties us to the hope which is the anchor of our souls this is our anchor this is our anchor rope the first strand is that the object of our faith is proven the second strand is that our hope is certain and the third is that our hope is not yet seen. The object of our faith is proven. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I believe that that is one of the most catastrophically misrepresented verses in the whole Bible. And here's why. The object of our faith, the, the person and the promise in which we trust are proven beyond any standard of evidence ever presented in any court, anywhere in the world, in any time in human history. There are so very many people, in fact, way too many Christians, who have this definition of faith that says faith is putting your mind on the shelf and buying into something that cannot be proven. Buying into something that, that cannot be compellingly demonstrated to be true. And it says if there's some virtue in believing something that's not provable, guys, that is, that is as far from the truth about the faith that God, to which God calls us as it can be. It is as far from the truth as it can be. 
In this verse, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The Greek word that's translated in some versions as assurance is actually a Greek word that means, it means foundation or substance. One Greek lexicon says it is, it refers to the objective reality that gives a firm guarantee and basis for confidence or assurance. It means substance, ground of hope, foundation. Another very well-known lexicon says it refers to that which has foundation, that which is firm. Hence, that which has actual existence, substance, real being. Beloved, everything that we find in the Bible's perfectly consistent testimony regarding the promise of God and the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ alone satisfies the highest standard of evidence that could ever be required for rock-solid certainty. And if you don't believe that, you need to dig into the Word a lot harder. Because God has made this so very, very clear. At the end of, God, of John's Gospel in John 20, John says if, if he recorded all of the signs and wonders that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. John chapter 20, John says that, that the books could not contain all the signs and wonders. And then he says the ones that he chose, the ones that he included, he included that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I gave you more than you needed. I gave you plenty so that you would know and you would believe what Peter professed when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. God has given every person on earth enough to know that this is true, even though he has to open our eyes to see it and our ears to hear it, because we are so callous and we are so closed to the things of God until he does a miracle in our hearts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul declares that the resurrection of Jesus is proof that our faith is rightly placed in Jesus Christ alone. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke says that during the time between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days so many times to so many people, and he says he appeared by many compelling proofs. Guys, that is why, that is why in the first generation of Christendom, the gospel spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire in a time when everyone who professed to have seen the resurrected Jesus was putting his life on the line. He was not making his life better. He was ensuring that he would have nothing on this earth, nothing that the world values. He would be persecuted. He would be called a fool. He would be, he would be, he would be used in some cases as as fuel so that his body would light the streets torched on fire in the city of Rome. He would be fed to lions. Many Christians faced that fate. Why? One simple thing. They had seen the resurrected Christ and they could not deny it. 
They had seen him executed and they had seen him raised and they had talked to him and they had touched him and they knew that he was truly and indeed raised from the dead. That's why the gospel spread like wildfire. And there are many people who have come to that conclusion who started out as atheists and honestly investigated the history of first century Rome and they couldn't come to any other conclusion. There was no other way this could have happened except that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. Don't let anyone ever tell you that faith is a blind leap. That is a lie. I want, I want young, the young people that God sets before me to know this more than anything else I can think of because the world is lying to you all the time. And God is the one who has told you the truth. I love the Net Bible translation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. The object of our faith is proven and our hope is certain. It's certain. Hebrews chapter 6 says in the same way, verse 17, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope that is set before us, this hope, listen, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. That means it's absolutely certain and it does not change. And one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner before us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The proof of the promise is found in the person and the work of the promiser. Jesus is the proof. Jesus is the proof. And he's all the proof that we will ever need. The last thing is that our hope is not seen. This is what a lot of, where a lot of people have trouble. They think if, if you can't get your hands on something, it's not worth your attention. Beloved, the fact that we can't get our hands on it is precisely what makes it worth our attention. And let me try to explain. God has very intentionally and very graciously called us to hope in something that we cannot lay, lay hold of fully until later. If we don't embrace this truth, we will squander our lives desperately trying to get our hands on something that God will never put into our hands. See, God has no intention of making, making you and me everything that he intends for us to be or giving us everything that he intends to give us while we are still on this cursed earth in these not yet redeemed bodies. For the same reason that he stationed cherubim at the border, the boundary of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out after they sinned, so they could not access, access the tree of life and live forever in their cursed condition. 
For the same reason, God has made the hope that is the anchor of our souls all about what's coming and not what we now have. And that's gracious. It's exceedingly gracious. And so Peter says to us in 1 Peter 1.13, it's another favorite verse for me. He says, therefore, gird your minds for action. In ancient Rome, when you wore, the men wore long robes, and in order to be ready to do something that required them to run or to, to be vigorous in action, they had to grab that rope and they had to tuck it up into their belt. That was what it means to gird up. He says, gird up your minds for action. How? Keep, keep sober in spirit and fix your hope in one place. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, <laughs> fix your hope not on what you've got now, but on what's coming when Jesus comes back to claim his bride. And if you'll do that, your life will make infinitely better sense than it will if you spend all of your days trying to grasp something that God's not yet ready to put into your hands. There's a very gracious reason that he's not yet ready. He's got a lot for us to do. But until the day that, until the day that he's ready to, to finish this out and to bring us into that perfect place, he tells us to live here as aliens and strangers. This is not our home. There's an old gospel song. This, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. <laughs> I like the first part of that. I, I get a little squeamish about the part, the just passing through part, because we're not just passing through, guys. We're here to be mightily useful to God. And the very thing that makes us mightily useful is that our hope is fixed on what's coming. You hear it said often that somebody is, I've heard it said, this, this guy is, is so heavenly minded that he's no, earth, no earthly good. That's not the problem. What, what makes people no earthly good is when they are not sufficiently heavenly minded. It's when their eyes are fixed here instead of there. That's what makes us useless. That's what puts us on the bench. This is as fundamental to the Christian life as fundamental gets, brothers and sisters. We are called to be aliens and strangers, not attaching ourselves with any zeal to anything that we get to grasp right now. There are only two things that we get to take with us, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. That's worth laying hold of. That's worth grasping and clinging to. Everything else is going to go away except the place that he's prepared for us. Him in that place with us and us together with all of the saints, delight, delighted to enjoy him with the curse put away from us forever in perfect, unhindered, loving communion and fellowship with our creator. Loving Father, I pray with all my heart that you will burn these things into, into our hearts, that you will sear them in so they, that we can't let go of them and we can't be distracted from them. And, and Father, <laughs> fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.
keep our eyes on him and make us mighty for you because our hope is on him and him alone. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.